Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Alberta is introducing provincial legislation which would allow for the recall of members of the provincial legislature as well as municipally elected officials. It's Bill 52. And um, there's also still the legislation that's being proposed in Alberta, and that's 211, which would allow the province to make decisions on firearms as opposed to the federal government. Casey Madu is the Solicitor General, Minister of Justice for the province of Alberta, and the minister joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Minister, good to speak with you again. How are you? Thank you so much, Roy. I am doing very well. So happy to be here. Yeah, good to have you with us. So tell us, please, what's the rationale for Bill 52, first of all, the Recall Act? What's what's the thinking behind it? You know, Roy, thank you again. Bill 52 is a very straightforward bill that is as a consequence of a platform commitment that we made it to Albertans during the course of the 2019 general election that we would give them an additional tool to be able to hold their elected officials accountable if that particular official is not doing their work to the expectation of their people. And so, Roy, I am so proud to have helped put this bill before the people of Alberta. So, so, Minister, how would it work? Let's say uh, I live in a constituency in the province of Alberta, and I'm not particularly happy with the job that's being done by the provincial MLA. How do I start the process of recall? The starting point, Roy, is to make an application to the chief electoral officer for a petition to begin to collect signatures in that particular constituency. Once the chief electoral officer is satisfied, he would then issue, he or she would then issue a recall petition. That uh, uh, petitioner can then go to his constituents and begin to collect signatures under this particular framework. 40% of the eligible voters in that particular constituency is required to meet the threshold. Now, 40% is a, is a, it's a big number. I mean, it doesn't sound like a big number at first, but it's a big number to get 40% of anybody in this country to agree on anything. You know, Roy, you are uh, correct to a certain extent. Uh, what I mean by that is this. Elected officials are elected by the people, and we want to make sure that there is in those extreme circumstances where the, the a near majority of the people of the constituency can agree that that particular MLA is not performing their responsibilities to their satisfaction. Uh, you know, to re- be able to remove someone elected by the people is a serious business. And I want to make sure that it is in those cases that warrant that a scrutiny on the part of that particular MLA that a tra- that particular threshold can be met. It is doable, it is achievable, it's been tried in other jurisdictions, uh, Roy. No, I'm, I'm in favor of it, Minister. I like the idea of, of recall. I, I find, I think 40%, well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a high test to meet. But, but then after that, if you meet the 40%, as I understand it, and, and that threshold is met, and the investigation or the process continues, it would be followed by a by-election, Correct. 
it will be followed by a recall election. So for, in the case of a, an MLA, in other words, member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta, once the 40% signature threshold is met, there will then be a, a recall election. And then by a simple majority, that MLA will be removed. Okay. Once removed, then it will proceed to a by-election. All right. So, and the MLA can only be recalled after 18 months in office during one particular term, correct? Correct, yeah. yes. So there, there, so there is a prohibition period uh, of 18 months following the election of the MLA and six, six, six months before the next general election. In other words, the period between 18 months and six months before the next election, that particular MLA can be recalled. Minister, it's different for the municipally elected officials. How does that work? So for municipal ele- elections, and we're talking about uh, mayors and reeves and councillors, as well as the school board trustees, because of the peculiar nature of their legislation that governs them, in the case of uh, municipality, the Municipal Government Act, and in the case of the school board trustees, the school uh, act. Uh, for municipalities, it would be, again, 40% of eligible voters that represent 40% of the population of a particular city or county or or village. In the case of school board trustee, it would be 40% of the eligible voters that represent 40% of the population as well. And then once that threshold is met, they would then go directly to a by-election. Okay, and no one elected to public office, be it provincial or municipal, no one is exempt from this recall legislation. doesn't matter whether you're the premier, whether you're a minister, or whether you're an opposition party leader. If you're an elected official, you fall under the jurisdiction of Bill 52 if it's passed. Absolutely right. No elected official at the provincial level, at the municipal level, or at the school trustee level it's exempt from this particular legislation. It doesn't matter whether you are the premier or whether you are the mayor of a particular city. Each and every one of us are accountable under this legislation. You know, just fundamentally it makes sense because nobody should have four years guaranteed job security regardless of what they do. And and that's what... People have been calling for recall acts for a long time. They're not always really responded to. Well, British Columbia has had one, as you know, Minister, since 1995. Six times petitions were presented to Elections BC, which did not approve five of them. And in the other case, the MLA resigned before the investigation process ended. So over 26 years in British Columbia, not one MLA, as I, as I understand, has been recalled as far as the process is concerned. But at least it's there. And it it's, provides the electorate with the uh, with the opportunity. Minister, let me just ask you as well about Bill 211. We talked about that the last time you were on this program, which would significantly impact the right uh, of, of legal gun owners to own firearms in the province of Alberta and reduce or eliminate, I'm not sure which, reduce or eliminate the, uh, the federal government's role. Absolutely right. You know, Bill 211 is right now proceeding uh, on the floor of the Alberta legislature, as you know, this is the bill that was introduced by my colleague, you know, the MLA from, uh, you know, Brooks Medicine at Michaela Glasgow. Uh, that bill is, is going very well. I think it's important that we defend it 
Alberta's um, jurisdiction with respect to uh, firearms and with respect to, uh, you know, are the fact that municipalities are a creation of the provincial government. And so we are going to ensure that the federal government does not use the municipalities to infringe upon the right of lawful, law-abiding gun owners in our province who are not the problem with respect to the, the, the issues that we encounter on a daily basis, on a national basis, with respect to firearms. Legal gun owners are not the problem. No, they're not. And they're low-hanging fruit, an opportunity, an opportunity for federal parties at election time. We've seen this before. But, but Minister, would Bill 211 actually eliminate Ottawa's role in firearms regulations in the province of Alberta, or would it, would it, uh, would it minimize their, their influence? Unfortunately, Roy, how I wish that we have the jurisdiction under the Constitution to prevent the federal government from having any say with respect to firearms. You know, I do think that, uh, you know, the, the founders of our country and the founders of our constitution, uh, if they were to be here today, would want to revisit that particular issue. It would not eliminate that because that is a federal jurisdiction. That said, it would minimize the intrusion by the federal government into, uh, the, into provincial jurisdiction and, and how that is enforced yeah. in our province. Yeah. Number two, Roy, as you know, we committed to appoint the chief firearms officer. And we are very close to making that particular announcement so that we have someone from Alberta who understands how these laws ought to be enforced in Alberta. Minister, somebody has to stand up for legal gun owners who jump through hoops in order to get a license to own a firearm. They hunt, they have, uh, they're the members of shooting clubs, they, 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 they become sporting uh, gun, shoot, gun enthusiasts, firearms owners. And, and it's the criminal element that needs the attention, not the, uh, not the legal governors. Michael's Kovrig and Spavor being tried in China on espionage charges and uh, a guilty verdict. And Chinese courts, from what I understand, 99% conviction rate. Uh, guilty verdict is a minimum 10 years in prison. So it's fine if you care about the families. We all do. But if you're the prime minister of the country and you're in charge of the government, you have options, you have opportunities, and opportunities that were not realized and not, not taken with a rather timid approach to China, which this government seems to be specializing in. Maybe one of the ministers will have something to say about me. Who knows? Professor Gordon Holden joins us. He's director emeritus of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, and we speak to uh, Professor Holden about these issues that have to do with China. On a regular basis, and he led a Canadian delegation to China in 2019, and the delegation included former federal cabinet minister. Pro- Professor Holden, thank you for the time. Uh, when you visited China, the, Michael Skovrig and Spavor were already in custody, were they not? That's correct. And in fact, uh, former Justice Minister Alan Rock uh, spoke first as to their cases and to answer their questions about the Chinese questions about Meng Wanzhou, and then John Baird. Uh, spoke second and uh, addressed the same issues. I thought it was important to have a bipartisan group there, former ministers, to give a political spin and not just a um, an academic dimension to the, the issues of the two Michaels. Of course, um, we didn't get satisfaction. The Michaels still now, uh, um, over a year past those date of those discussions, are still in jail. 
and as you mentioned in your run-up, that they are um, now before the courts. So what is your expectation? You know the Chinese system better than most. What do you expect is going to happen? What's the, what's the end game for China here? Well, you say I know the China better than most, but that may be true but in Canada, but it's a, a very opaque system and, and hard to read. They don't give her a lot of clues. But they tend to follow set patterns. And uh, this closing, for example, the courthouse to not allowing any um, diplomatic representatives, not allowing members of the public, no journalists, allowed during Michael Spavor's trial on Friday, that's par for the court. And in fact, in their regulations, it states that uh, for national security issues, there shall be no no um, uh, observers present, no family members, etc. Uh, they haven't seen their family members in over two years. Um, but I would expect that based on what happened on Friday, the same thing will happen on Monday uh, in Beijing. His Michael Spavor's trial was in Dandong, right on the North Korean border. Uh, Michael Kovrig's trial will be in Beijing. Uh, but I would expect, similarly, we won't get a an actual indication of the verdict, although you pointed out 99%, there's a much doubt there, and we won't get a notification of the sentence. And this, this, often this, they do come right away, but it may be that China's hedging its bets a bit. They, they still care far, far more about getting... Meng Wanzhou back than they do about the two Michaels. They were just, in my opinion, randomly selected as two Canadians who were there, who were sacrificed. Um, I don't think they really care at the end of the day whether they're in jail or not. These are the hostages they hold um, for Meng Wanzhou. Yeah, and it's a hostage situation, isn't it? And Meng Wanzhou lives in splendor and opulence in Vancouver, which may be, do tell me this, uh, Professor Holden, is that interpreted as weakness by Beijing? It may well do, um, may well be the case. I mean, she has a choice of two mansions, in uh, pricey mansions in, in Vancouver. She wears an ankle bracelet, fine, but she, her situation is in complete contrast to those of the Michaels, particularly in that first six months when they were interrogated day and night by Ministry of State Security. Um, I think the Chinese may see it that way. Um, however, again, we have the rule of law. It was the judge that set those conditions, not the government of Canada. Um, and uh, in, our, in our system, if you're not a flight risk, and there's measures were being taken to avoid that, I hope they're adequate, uh, that's the sort of situation you're in, 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 in at, the, at the discretion of the judge. Chinese system, no way. They don't even have a bail provision. You're either in jail or you're out, but there's no out on bail. Uh, so there's a, a sharp contrast there. I think some people in their system... Uh, the people who've served in Canada, perhaps, or in North America at least, uh, or who've studied European, North American legal systems in detail, will understand that that's, we're just following our rules. But uh, you're all right. I think there are some who will see it as, as a soft approach. There's another Canadian, Robert Schellenberg, who's under a death sentence in China, convicted of accessory to drug smuggling. Um, he had some legal issues in this country. But very little is said about Mr. Schellenberg, but he's under death sentence. He is, and he, well, again, as you note, he had a conviction for drug smuggling and a drug offense of some sort here in Canada already. Um, I think people are differentiating a bit because in his instance, I don't know his guilt or innocence, but there is a prospect that he was guilty. The sentence is another thing, and this is where he was exceptionally unlucky. Because when he got, I think, a 12-year sentence for drug, China cheats drug offenses very, very seriously, hard, hard time, 
uh, he chose to appeal. But his appeal was heard after the detention of Monk, and that's where the sentence went from 12 years to death sentence. So that, in my view, was again a political decision from high in the party to say, okay, we're going to make an example of him. Now, interestingly, uh, significantly, they haven't uh, moved to execute him. In China, this can come at speed. I mean, you can have a, a trial and a sentence carried out, and death sentence. They, they execute more people than the whole of the rest of the world put together, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. He could have, that could have happened already a long time ago, well, almost roughly a year and a half, two years ago. Mm-hmm. It didn't. And so that also tells me that they are, as in the Chinese authorities, just with the sentencing details, uh, they are trying to play their hand to, in their view, maximize the prospects of Hmong getting out. And I don't think they understand that for us, the Hmong case will run its course in the courts, and even the, uh, the government can't interfere. I don't, I've dealt with them on other issues, like uh, Lai Chang Singh, which is a big smuggler who was in Canada, whom they wanted back, and he was going through all of the appeal processes right up the Supreme Court in Canada. When I was in the embassy, I never had the sense that they fully understood that um, these issues were not political issues that could be decided uh, by the government. Now, the government does have, in the case of the of Hmong, they do have a tool they can employ under an extradition act where the Minister of Justice could release her at any time. But they they don't understand, in my view, the essence of rule of law. That's one of the problems we have, one of them. Yeah. And, and there are many, and we're finding out more and more. And, and it's been argued that uh, the liberals have too cozy a relationship or comfy relationship with the Xi administration. Former Prime Minister Chretien has been a paid lobbyist for Chinese companies in Canada and for years, while also representing Canadian corporations in their dealings with Beijing. And Mr. Chretien's suggestion was uh, let Ms. Meng go a walk away from the extradition treaty with Washington in about 30 seconds, Professor Holden. What, what would that have resolved? Do you think anything? Well, I think if Hmong had been let go, I think the Chinese would have found a way to release it to Michael. That's the kind of deal-making de- deal they understand. We give you this, you give us that. Or you give us that, and then we give you this. That's the kind of deal they're looking for. That's the way they think. We've talked to Charlie Angus, NDP Member of Parliament for Timmins-James Bay, on a number of occasions about the Ethics Committee, of which Mr. Angus is a member, and the Parliamentary Ethics Committee investigating Mark and Craig Kielberger and We Charity's relationship with the Trudeau family. And when the... uh, There may be consensus in this country on this. When the Ethics Committee was getting closer and closer to, um, well, extending the... getting close to the edge of the comfort zone for Trudeau, he prorogued Parliament. And uh, so Mr. Angus has been uh, actively engaged in trying to get answers. He's talked to us on this program. And he's back with us. And, uh, Charlie, thank you for coming back. And we last weekend spoke with uh, Guy Giorno, the legal advisor to We Charity. Do you want to hear what he had to say about you? I would love to hear what he has to say about me. I can imagine. Play it. What happened was that uh, Charlie Angus wrote... uh, allegations to the RCMP, Canada Revenue Agency, uh, posted them, tweeted about them, and uh, that changed the dynamic because it, it uh, for charity, certainly, it meant that uh, what was going to be a simple exercise of answering questions now, you know, uh, created all sorts of legal risk and uncertainty for the charity. 
So there, there's Guy Jarno, the legal advisor to eCharity. He also he, he objects to, and he's not the only one, but he object, objects to members of parliament having the right to summon individuals before parliamentary committees. You also know that we.org has a web attack on you, Charlie Angus 101 false statements. So defend yourself, Mr. Angus. <laughs> well, I, I would say that Guy Giorno is, uh, is part of the web attack on me. Um, Guy Giorno, who was, you know, Stephen Harper's right hand, right hand to Mike Harris. Um, the idea uh, that you could hire a guy like Guy Giorno to come out and say that it is outrageous that politicians can call witnesses to hearings about a program that was upwards of $912 million is ridiculous. I, I've lost a lot of respect for Guy over this because I think the fact that he's <laughs> he would take such a ridiculous position and think it would pass uh, the nod test is, is crazy. Um, the idea that they're going to t attack me, um, I think, is an attempt to deflect. We know that last July, the Conservatives wrote to the RCMP about We Charity, um, and that didn't stop the Kielbergers from showing up. But, Roy, I think what's really strange about this group, um, you know, because they kept talking about the children, they always talk about the children. In 2019, according to the IRS filings, they spent about $600,000 on media, including a group that uh, this Firehouse Strategies that worked with the Marco Rubio campaign, worked on the sort of Trump style election politics and they train people in combative uh, I think it was com combative media training and I'm thinking to myself what kind of ch children's charity needs to be training with uh, Trump style politician uh, political hit teams on combative media training well we saw it we saw it on their defiance of parliament we saw it on hiring Guy Journal to come out and attack me we saw their behavior at the committee and as they were doing their witness testimony they launched this website personally attacking me for, I guess, having the nerve to ask questions about how this money was spent or would have been spent. So when you look at this, uh, when you look at that website, um, I for some reason, 101 Dalmatians keeps popping into my yeah. head, but, but Charlie Angus, 101 false statements. How many of those statements? Have you read them all? Um, I, I, I first just glanced through it and then rolled my eyes but a, a journalist actually had called me about it and said let's just walk through them so what they are Roy at the, at the best I would say it's incredibly juvenile behavior um, the, the, if if they want to fight straw men go ahead um, but I think it's it's pretty crazy talk they say that um, you know that they'd only ever had one I talked about at committee about you know that they this massive media machine that was this Stillman Foundation paying for ads. Yeah, you said that on, you said that on this program too. I know, and uh, they said there's only ever been one op-ed, only one op-ed in the Toronto Star. Well, it's not true. I mean, the, the Matt Torgan, who was hired by the Stillman Foundation, did an op-ed for them. That's what I was referring to. Like these are like really weird. You have to be so far down the Kielberger rabbit hole to take these things seriously. But stepping out of that, Roy. I think it's a really strange and potentially dangerous precedent that in future will be the Kielberger option, that if you're under investigation, if you don't want to address parliament, um, that you hire your lawyers, you th you uh, undermine the, you, you claim the process isn't legitimate, and then you start attack websites on the politicians who are asking your questions, that might throw some politicians off. That might intimidate some. 
this isn't intimidating me. I feel like I'm being beaten to death with popcorn in the public (laughs) square, (laughs) but it's not going to stop me from asking questions about how this group so closely tied to the Trudeau family we got the inside track. That's so, so what I what here. I said what I said to Guy Giorno when he said when he said uh, you know objected to members of Parliament and committees having the right to summon people before the committees. I said, look, and he said it's it's up to law enforcement. But I took him back to the issue of SNC Lavalin and Trudeau firing his Solicitor General and uh, Justice Minister. We know what happened. Uh, Jody Wilson Raybould, who's not allowed to speak. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and the, the former health minister is gone as well, Jane Philpott. And we we understand that the RCMP were looking into this, or at least they had a conversation with Jody Wilson-Raybould. She said that much. And I said to Mr. Giorno, we haven't heard anything from the RCMP about what's been going on. And there's so many questions that remain unanswered. So maybe it really is the province of the federal politicians, members of parliament, to, to get involved and summon people before the ethics committee if the law enforcement agencies are silent. Well, Roy, we asked uh, the Kilberger brothers right off the top, are you under investigation? Apparently not. So then what was all the big song and dance that they this was putting them in jeopardy? Because, again, when you're a children's charity and you're working in the schools of our nation, you don't want to be giving an impression that you may be under investigation. And the attack on me, I think, is to deflect attention from the fact that what I actually did was I wrote to the RCMP based on Reed Cowan's statements. And Reed Cowan if your listeners have been following, is a, uh, he's been on the board. He's a board member, advisory board member of We Charity United States. He is a huge fundraiser for We, and he has asked for an investigation uh, by the IRS. He's asked for an investigation by the police, and I forwarded that letter on or to to the RCMP, and I said, listen, this man has raised these questions. Um, will you look into this? Yeah, his son died uh, tragically, and he yes. raised money for his son's name to be on schools and in Africa, and when he got there, the son's name was nowhere to be seen on the schools, and he, that that uh, that that's available on YouTube. Charlie, we have about a minute left here. How how would you assess the performance or the the appearance? I want to use the word performance. How would you assess the appearance by Mark and Craig Kilberger before the Parliamentary Ethics Committee? Because they ended, didn't they just end, they ended up attacking the Liberals, and the Liberals attacked them. Yeah, I think they've tried to present themselves as politically naive, which of course is ridiculous given how closely tied they were to so many top cabinet ministers and the prime minister's family. But I think what at the end of the day, maybe they were just absolutely shocked that having built that kind of reputation that the liberals were willing to throw them under the bus. Hey, welcome to Canada. Welcome to the liberal party. (laughs) Come on. Uh, I think they were very upset about that. And they seem to be really indignant that people are asking questions. Well, they had the inside track on what could have been upwards of $912 million in taxpayers' money. That's right, under a $43 um, million dollar fee. Yeah, uh, f- tough questions for sure, but fair questions. And if you're going to play in the, the big boys' realms and ask for big boy money uh, from the taxpayers, you got to act like a big boy when you come and explain yeah. how you would have done it and how you did it and why you were not registered to lobby yeah. and all those other questions. That's all absolutely fair. So if they want to ta- set up attack websites um, fighting the straw man Charlie Angus and seeing how mean I am to them, that will not deflect attention from the fact that we have an ob- job to do in Parliament and I don't care how many high-powered lawyers they hire from the Conservatives or Liberals. We have a job to do, and we're going to do that job. The uh, biggest story in this country, of course, is China sending the two Michaels, Michaels, Spavor, and Kovrig, to trial on espionage charges. Meanwhile, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with top Chinese officials in Alaska on Thursday. 
While members of the Uyghur, Uyghur community rather, protested outside the U.S. State Department in Washington, calling on the United States to act swiftly to end China's genocide of Uyghur people in Xinjiang province, or as our guest insists, is East Turkestan. As you recall, our Canadian members of parliament voted unanimously to condemn China as uh, participating in genocide against the Uyghurs, although Mr. Trudeau and his cabinet decided to abstain. Salih Hudayar is back with us. He's the prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile and a political refugee whose family fled to the United States. With him on uh, Thursday at the protest was uh, Zumret Dawut. She is a Uyghur concentration camp victim and survivor. She's not with us, but uh, Mr. Hudayar is. How are you, Mr. Hudayar? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, tell us uh, your thoughts on Thursday's meeting between the Secretary of State of the United States and uh, the delegation of high-ranking Chinese officials, a meeting that was confrontational at times. Were you satisfied w- with what came out of that? Um, we are grateful that the United States has you know, uh, reiterated that it's not going to stand silent uh, against China's atrocities, uh, whether it's happening in East Turkestan, Hong Kong, or elsewhere. Um, however, uh, we, we thought the U.S. would be more uh, forceful, um, especially given that the Chinese delegation was extremely uh, rude in many in many cases and extremely confrontational. Yeah, they certainly were confrontational about this. Remind us, please, of what is going on as far as the Chinese government's actions toward the Uyghur people is concerned. So since 2014, the Chinese government has locked up millions of people in what it calls re-education camps or vocational training centers which are essentially concentration camps. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of Uyghur and other Turkic women have been sterilized. Uh, There's systematic uh, state-sponsored rape of Uyghur and other Turkic women. And over 850,000 children have been forcibly separated from their families and uh, sent to state-run orphanages. Uh, All of this is part of China's uh, uh, top-down genocide that it's been implementing against the Uyghurs. It's taken the world a long time to recognize what's taking place and, in fact, speak out. Yes, unfortunately, a lot of countries, um, because of their close economic and political ties with China, uh, they feel that recognizing the genocide and, you know, confronting China over this would, you know, deteriorate their relationship. Unfortunately, uh, as you just briefly mentioned, the Canadian government itself, although the Canadian Parliament has um, recognized the genocide, has uh, abstained um, from uh, for the time being, and uh, we were grateful for the Canadian Parliament and the Canadian people. Yeah, would you tell us, please, what uh, your associate Zumret Dawut, who was in a concentration camp run by China, that's what she states, she was in a concentration camp. What did she experience? What did she see? How long was she there? So based on, she was over there for uh, over a month, um, and she was able to get out because of her husband's uh, dual citizenship, uh, I mean, uh, her husband being a foreign national, um, but she experienced torture, uh, she was sterilized um, like other Uyghur women, uh, she stated that she witnessed, you know, uh, uh, you know, other people dying in the camps, including, you know, uh, elderly women. 
Um, and she said, you know, the Chinese government is engaged in, you know, uh, such atrocities that many people, uh, you know, just from, you know, if they were to see it, they, they would, you know, they would be heartbroken. So she was forcibly sterilized. Yes, uh, the Chinese government, um, you know, they've been sterilizing uh, Uyghur women, <clears throat> especially um, those uh, that already had uh, one or two children, and then um, those that you know refused to uh, you know marry Chinese um, Chinese men. Now you, you've told us in the past that you have family who remain in East Turkestan or Sinjuan Province, as China prefers. How's your family doing? Uh, I haven't been able to hear any. I haven't been able to communicate with anyone inside East Turkestan since the summer of 2017. Uh, the last time I was able to get any information was shortly uh, after the um, uh, after we put forth our complaint against China at the International Criminal Court, and I heard that one of my uh, cousins, who was only you know 21 years old, was uh, we believe that he was uh, sentenced to uh, execution or uh, life in prison um, because of the the vague code words that were used. Uh, for separatism. So what do you make of the fact, and you're aware of this, uh, the espionage trials against two Canadians, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, what do, what do you make of this particular situation? What's your sense? I mean, the Chinese government, they're trying to, you know, get away with, you know, abusing other, uh, you know, foreign citizens. Um, this is not the only Canadian that's in jail, actually, um, since 2006, there has been a Uyghur Canadian named Hussein Jalil who's been, uh, who's been in jail, who's received a life sentence for alleged, uh, you know, bogus um, separatism and t- terrorism, you know, activities that the Chinese government claims, um, you know, is accusing him of. And he hasn't yet been able to, you know, get any access to Canadian diplomats during this whole, you know, 16, uh, 14, 14, 15 years. Yeah. I'm aware of that particular case. What's your best hope, Mr. Houdiyar? The, the world is paying attention. China is rudely pushing back and saying, we're not doing anything that's, uh, that's improper. We're just doing what we do as a country. Stay out of our business. What is your best hope for the Uyghur community in, uh, in China or in Sinjuan province? We're hoping, we're hoping that the international community, you know, they uphold their commitments to never again and actually take action before it's too late. During the Holocaust, everybody knew the Holocaust was happening, but the international community didn't act in time, uh, which resulted in the deaths of millions of Jews and others. And so we're hoping that they won't repeat something, you know, while it's happening. We need to stop it while it's happening. Um, And we hope that countries like Canada are, you know, are are able to actually, you know, uh, take care of their citizens, to, to protect their citizens, including, you know, the two Michaels and Hussein Jalil, uh, to use a more forceful manner because China, uh, every time that, you know, the international community, you know, gives some, uh, you know, leverage to China, they, 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 they use it to the maximum extent. And it, it's, it's a humiliation for, you know, Canada and other countries. Mr. Hudiar, good talking to you again. Thank you very much for the time. We'll talk. We'll touch base again. Thank you. Sally Hudayar, he's living in the United States. He's the prime minister of East Turkestan government in exile. And uh, he has family who are, as you heard, um, in uh, Chinese detention 
in Sinjuan province or East Turkestan as the Uyghur community describes it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.